Good afternoon, everyone. We are live here with Office Hours with David Meltzer and Mike Diamond. Get a dose of diamond every day with the life fuel that I'm on right now. So if you want to legalize crack cocaine, you can have it too from Mikey Diamond. And uh, I'm here at SoFi. This is the first time I've been in my studio at SoFi with a concert behind me, not a football field. And uh, it's pretty cool. I never realized how much work went into putting these things together. So I know, Mike, you've been in the promotion side of it. But moreover, and more importantly, we're going to talk about leadership today. And we have one of the greatest mentors of leadership and leadership engagement uh, of taking new ground. Uh, Adrian Kaler, welcome to Office Hours. How are you today? Oh, awesome. So good to be here. Thanks it for having me. Great to I just I, I just took I just took my kid down to an event at SoFi where we got to play and throw the ball around, kick through the uprights, do the whole yeah. thing, pull the hamstring in the first three minutes. It was awesome. That's normally what I see behind me: are kids playing in that uh, course, and it's a great place to be. Um, yeah, I'm going to start off with a quote uh, that I saw that you had. It was turning leadership shit into leadership, <laughs> and. <laughs> Uh, I think a lot of people have the wrong perspective of leadership, one that historically has been, I think, more intimidating and ego-based than anything else. And you, like I, take a different perspective of leadership. What is the premise for you, since you're working with the biggest companies in the world and navigating people through their personal professional leadership uh, yeah. aspirations, there has to be a core definition for you or a premise about leadership to start. Wow, that's a great question. And, and once again, thanks for having me on. I mean, what is leader? What is leadership, or what is leading? Even I, I think of I think of it more as a verb than a noun. Number one, I, I think of it's it's an active engagement of going or creating the future you want with the people you love. I love that. Love that. You know, and really that's a. That. I mean, there's lots of caveats in there, but I think, you know, I think that's I think that's core. Which is I, I can I can go on if you want, but anyway, that's that would be the bumper sticker version. And, and I like that. In, in order to do that, do you have like for me? I, I believe one of the characteristics to do that, and I agree with you. I talk about coordinated collaboratively, collaborative movement and leadership, and I believe um, that you have to be an intelligent follower uh, to mm. be a leader under the context of you know the love of the unity and idea and alignment. Are there some other characteristics? in your definition that play a key role? Sure. Um, I mean, I, a lot of times when we're, you know, so I spend all my time, 80% of my time talking one-on-one to, to people that are running and owning a company. Um, and then love it when I get together with people in a room and the conversation always comes up. We see things a lot in paradoxes. Um, we see leadership as a ton of paradoxes. We have a leadership assessment tool we use to illuminate a lot of these, which are the tensions that people feel all the time. They just don't have language for it. Um, and they love, we all love to judge the shit out of other people when they're acting a certain way, yet don't realize we're, we are the same, right? So one of these key paradoxes that comes to mind when you ask that question is um, when you think about how people are engaged in reality. And on the y-axis is a, is a question of how connected are they to the future that, they're, that they say they're committed to. Put that on the y-axis. How, how clear are they? How clear do they communicate it? How engaged are they in it? How much do they meditate on it? How much are they strategizing towards it? You know, like that. The other, the, the, the x, x side of the axis is how sober are they connected to current reality? Now, most people 
love to talk about the future because it's romantic and it's fun and it's relieving actually usually it's you know it's entrancing talking about the future most people we found don't need help talking about i mean some of them need help talking about the future most of them need help getting their arms around what's really here because they're unwilling to properly investigate we would say or do the forensics on current reality because the reason why they're not there already is because there's something that's happening in the room that probably isn't being talked about and definitely not being owned. If you can't talk about it, you can't own it and then use it as a resource. So, you know, it's, it's those two being clear and committed to the future, like unapologetically and being clear and committed to uh, and committed to current reality, which will not be polite. If we do it really well, it won't be polite. It'll be like, like crucial conversations. There'll be a lot of conflict or tension. And most people would just rather, do what Kierkegaard says is find a level of despair that's tolerable and call it happiness. <laughs> wow. That's so true. That, so going off that, the unhappiness, a lot of us have to suffer some kind of pain before we wake up. Some people don't wake up. They just sit in the misery. Did you yeah. suffer some kind of pain, which made you take action to say like, you know what, this leadership is not actually, people aren't leading correctly. Were you in a position where you were being misled by someone and you had to make a pivot? What caused you to then take action to be coaching leaders and be a great leader? To be in this world? Well, it's always, it's interesting. So I came from the Midwest, came from a small town, middle of nowhere, Southern Illinois, great parents, school teachers, the whole thing. I, I, I joke like my life was like a, an episode of Friday Night Lights. My brother and I were athletes. My dad coached every team, all that. So and they grew up in a you know a religious context. Anyway, we're very much like that. Um, so like leading, and my parents are both leaders, so I always saw leadership happening. And I liked, you know, I got into leadership because I was uncomfortable in my own skin. I, you know, it's like, what's going on here? It was always a question for me. What are we, what are we doing here? What, you know, and so I figured out early that anybody can choose to be a leader. I, you know, and I'm more comfortable if I am, or somebody else is that that knows what they're doing. So I became, quickly became like st started experimenting in leadership, but I didn't like have a conviction about what I wanted to be when I grew up or what I wanted to do. So I've kind of I've I've done lots of different things along the journey. And in, in undergrad, I was a pre-med guy. I decided to get a nursing degree to go be and I was a critical care nurse. So to getting to some of your answer here, being with people at like the crossroads when their kids were dying, like I was in pediatrics, that was crucial. And leadership was happening or not happening and suffering was either increasing or decreasing based on that answer. So learning how to, to put language to chaos and ease people into the conversation that was needed, which those were like, you know, life, literally life and death situations. Then I moved on and I was a pastor for many years, people having existential crisis about who they are and why that matters. And should they give a shit about the world or should they just kind of be pious and in, in the fortress, you know, and I was always at, let's go make a difference in the world. And I, you know, so there was a lot of kind of justified fence sitting, as there are in lots of arenas in life, especially the religious arena, um, and then worked in the prison system. I ran a foundation for many years and, and cut my teeth as a coach, coaching murderers in prison, which is quite an interesting, you know, situation to be in, where it's like helping people that had done heinous acts get honest about how they're responsible for everything not where they're from, not their background, not the color of their skin, not blah, 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 all that, you know, stories that justify the heinous activity instead take responsibility. Then they can be free even in prison. They can actually be the father they never were now if they get out of their victim story. And I, you know, I had leaders that 
some connected with me along the way, some didn't connect with me along the way that worked and didn't work. And then I just kind of dug, I like this work. So I, I know I, there's a guy named Bill Hybels that said that the world rises and falls in the backs of leaders. And I believed him. So helping people step up into whatever their potential is, helping people step up into that is what I decided at some point made the most, made the most sense for me to what made the mo- most meaning for me to give my life to and for a couple of reasons. One is it makes the world better. Second is it pulls me to the edge of my seat. I get bored really easily. And I, and I just, I could never fit inside of a regular organization because I'm too much of a rabble rouser. So, and when I'm sitting and talking to somebody that's probably twice as smart as I am, um, and I got to be on the edge of my seat to even keep up with this guy. And I, I know some distinctions about how to help him be really honest with himself and be courageous. I know how to help him do that. He's busy being, I just got off the phone with a world-class physicist that started a very well-known company. And he's, you know, I've never took a physics class in my life, but he needs from me something that no one else is going to challenge him with. And so I just got a kick out of, you know, being able to be a fierce advocate for people. And you were talking about work in prison. And one of the quotes that you have is we're all, we're all actually criminals. Um, And I thought that was a fascinating way to look at things. And I think in the realm of ego, I can see where that's going, but I'd love for you to give me some examples of how and why we're all criminals and what impact that has as a leader. Sure. So, you know, we always talk about our trainings. We're all criminals. Some of us are just more arrestable than others. <laughs> and, and, and bec- why, why is Some that? Some of us so- look like a criminal more than others, Mike. <laughs> right on. Sorry, Mike. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> it's all right. It's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah. You're my kind of guy, man. They're all criminals. It's a genetic inheritance. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean, there's I mean, the human brain is always doing its job. And the number one job of the human brain is to survive. We don't ask it for that. That's what it's doing. That is the gravity of our neurology. Number one. Number two, its second priority is save energy so that later I can survive. Those are the number one, number two reasons for the brain, why it's functioning. So what do we get as human beings because of that? Well, we want to survive and, you know, 21st century survival is looking good, feeling good, being right, being in control. Those actually help us survive. And that can be a physical survival or most of the time for us, as you're saying, David, it's an ego survival. So I rather look good in my own eyes, look good in front of other people, feel good, like take the shortest path if I can, be right, like get dogmatic or be in control, start to move people around, manipulate other people. That's happening. For all of us, the temptation for that to be happening is is here to stay. It's not going away ever. It's not our conversation. It's been here since the beginning of the time. You can read all ancient all, all ancient texts point to this. So that's criminal, meaning we're not honest with ourselves about that. That's like a what Jung would call it the dark side, right? Kind of the selfish, that you know the the behind the scenes conversation. I might be in a meeting saying, "Oh, hey." Mike, that was a really great idea. But in my head, I'm like, Mike's such a dumbass. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But I'll say it, right? And that's criminal. So when I say criminal, I just mean inauthentic. You know, like we're not that, we don't want to be transparent for fear out of if I'm transparent, I'm going to get left behind. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to be singled out. It's not going to work out, blah, blah, blah. Like, so, you know, transparency is a huge possibility for people to actually own who they are and be that in the world, i.e. freedom. Um, but we'll give that up for 
the best life that my my inauthenticity can give me. But that's also another form of prison. So we just invite folks to own that as soon as we can have the I mean, we're not going to get to the real conversation as long as people are playing games. So we're kind of like the smelling salts for our types of clients. They always want like the five step plan. And we're like, well, we're going to sniff out all the bullshit first. We'll see if you want to talk after that. Like, you know, because for for me, I'm always warning new clients. I said, I know there are lots of conversations under the table. And just just so you know, that's where I'm going. Because whatever whatever you can't talk about is what's running your organization. That's and Mike, you have to do the same thing as an addiction specialist, right? Aren't you doing the exact so same thing? So I do. So I do. And people won't take yep. responsibility. That's, right that's what I was just going to ask you. Isn't it so hard to make, like you said some great things about, like people don't take responsibility. And the greatest thing I love what you said is the here and now. Yeah. So everyone's got this plan of the future, but they won't take responsibility of the actions they're taking right this second, which is blowing right. up their world. And we right talked on. earlier about being in recovery. And when I yeah. deal with people in recovery, they're like, oh, no, no, it's not me. And I'm like, well, who's giving you the drugs? Who's snorting them? Who's taking them? Yeah, the fairy, that's right. Your fairy godmother? No, 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 <laughs> it wasn't me. And then they bring in the past, like you just said. Like, it's the right parents. So, so, so how do you then, before we get off, like, how do you make someone, if you're working with them, you go in and you want to get to the core of all the bullshit, how do you make them take responsibility? Well... First off, you can't make them do anything, number one. True. So, you know, that's a kind of a subtle nuance. But first off, I got to know that, that this is their life. So I get them talking about the future. That's actually what will and their willingness to talk about the future and and get clear about what they really want. Most time, if people are running a scam, they won't talk authentically about where they want to go because they know they're running a scam. So if I get them to talk about the future, all their resistance is going to come up naturally. It just does. And all the reasons why it won't work and all the this and that and all that. And all that is just resistance. And then I'll go to I'll talk about the distinction between what they really want and what they have right now. And I'll explore with them current reality as it is right now and keep going until it gets really clear. And I'll say, if you don't do anything new and you multiply what you got, what that, what's that going to look like in the future? And you give them what I call the parade of horribles. You know, so how bad is it going to get? It's going to get really bad. Okay, good. Now, and if the pain comes up, then people are like, okay, now I'm going to have to do something they don't know what to do, which is, or how to do, which is like to be, you know, to be really honest, they haven't taken that leap for the most part. And these are all, all founders of companies. So I'm not like getting them to confess their deepest, darkest sins, but I mean, some of them do. I mean, even the guy I who just talked to even the guy just talked to real quick. I know we're, we're done is Sorry. the first I've been coaching him a year, uh, shoot three years now. The first conversation in the conversation, he said to me, I started this company and I know I'm killing the baby. It's me. And he said it with tears in his eyes. And this is a world class company. He was the problem. And I knew we had a ball game. So I was honest. Yeah. If you get someone to tell you what they're doing to participate in the perception, uh, you know, and utilizing that vernacular really helps them just understanding, okay, I'm participating. Because you got to take these baby sets. All right. You're talking about your parents and your history or the employees or the economy, but what are you doing to participate in that perception? Right on. And now we have somewhere to go from there. Adrian, we have to have you back. Adrian Kaler, expert, leadership engagement of taking new ground in a variety of different ways. Hey, let's turn our leadership into leadership, especially <laughs> we really need it out there. Thank Amen. you so much, Adrian. We'll have you on our other shows. Take care. Love it. Love it. Thanks, guys. Bye, Bye brother. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It was great.
Oh yeah, we could have talked to him for hours, like most yeah, of ours. Really. All right, uh, we got uh, Azul, which means blue, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <my favorite laughs> it does. Color. How are you, Azul? I'm doing Aaron well. Nez, the CEO and co-founder and of Authors Who Lead. This must be Leadership Day, Mikey. Um, it so is. <laughs> he's the author of the Power Hour. Has a 14-day free trial um, about authors who lead. Uh, let, let me start as an author, and I know Mikey's a multiple author as well. Um, is it possible to lead as an author, uh, or is you know being an author just a uh, calling card to being a leader? That's a great question. I think it depends on how you view the process of writing the book. Most authors, to be honest, will avoid the work of writing because if you are going to be vulnerable and honest about who you really are, what your strengths and weaknesses are, you have to show up truly in the book. It doesn't matter if you're writing a fiction or nonfiction book. The truth is what draws people to you. And so a lot of people miss out on the opportunity of transformation and growth in the writing process. So they think that books are not ideas. Words are feeling, you know, like words that hold ideas. They're actually concepts and messages. So words are just the way in which we hold on to them when we can't be present with people. So if you think that books are full of words, you're missing the whole opportunity. Books is full of the unique value you offer because uh, there's no unique messages out there. There's only unique messengers, as my friend Jada Selner says. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for people who understand why are you the one to teach me this thing? Not so much just here's how you do this XYZ thing. And I think that's what we're missing. I think leadership comes from the moment you step into the ring and say, look, I'm willing to put myself out there and not just tell you, what's safe. And I think that's where leadership happens is at the very beginning of the process. That was so beautiful. Unique messengers. I really like that. That was really good. So in the notes, I'm dyslexic and I didn't find out until I was writing a screenplay with a friend of mine. And he was like, dude, you're dyslexic. I know what you're trying to say, but this is not how you spell it. How, how did that come about? <laughs> yeah. Cause he would read and be like, dude, you, you, it's not how you write it actually how you're sounding it. Um, how did you, I know you found out later, but you went and achieved all this stuff with your dyslexia. So how did, how did you find out you were dyslexic? And then how have you used it as a superpower? Because I have like different things I've used in my dyslexia that have helped. Yeah. Well, that's a great, a great question because I, I didn't know until I hadn't even heard of the word until I was in college and it was like my senior year and someone mentioned the professor actually mentioned that they were dyslexic. And I was like, I have no idea what that was, but as they described how difficult it is to read or how hard it is to write things and put them in order and sequential logical order. I was like, uh, yes. And then when I did the testing, I'm like, oh my gosh, no wonder it was so hard to get through school. You know, uh, it was painfully so, but the thing that became the superpower is ironically, because I failed freshman English at UCLA, actually I'm the least likely person to be coaching people and writing books. Because of that, I thought there's no way I'm going to ever have this lifelong dream of writing. But my superpower became realizing that books are the messages and the words just hold them. And so all my peers were studying the, the language, the grammar, the things they could do really well, but they were missing what was just under the surface. What does this really mean? What are they saying? So I was really good at seeing beneath the surface, seeing deeper than the things they were looking for. So that's why people have called me a book whisperer because people put words there. I was like, that's what you're saying, but... I want to know what this means. Like, yeah. go a little farther here when you say this. And so I really help people uncover things that are within the subconscious part of their writing, not the things they know. Because what you know is on the surface. Who you are is just below. 
So I'm that's the superpower. That's how I've been able to help some incredible authors who thought they would just write what they know. I said, let's put who you are on the page, and I think you'll find a different experience. And through that experience, you know, it just begs the question for me is frequency, uh, something that, you know, I study, I'm aware of, whether it's in the writing or speaking or videos, you know, I'm looking for a comparable frequency, knowing that, you know, the higher my frequency, the more aware I can be, but also the higher the frequency, the stronger the signal, the wider the spectrum of resonance of that frequency. And as you talk about words holding messages, words also hold frequency. And, you know, I was curious with your background and understanding of authenticity of what I call essence, uh, you know, utilizing Shakespeare as my main guide in the same way that you do to thine own self be true. And then let's capture, modify, amplify, and perpetuate it in this uh, document, this book, so that people can resonate with your energy or your frequency. How important is the frequency side of the essence beyond just the messages there's a vibration or a frequency uh do you utilize that in your coaching well what i what i I say is if you're writing from what you know meaning in your brain just your cerebral part of you not the complete part of you you're only going to tell part of the truth it's usually the same part of truth you show when you're walking out you try not to let everybody know you're a total mess you know or what we think we are that's why there's so much resistance to writing and two of you being authors you may or may not have experienced it but i find that authors have an incredible amount of resistance and has nothing to do with their ability to write or tell story has everything there with their ability to be truthful and truthful meaning honest and that's where the resonance i think that comes in play here the more honest you are the longer those waves become the less honest they're short and they're very muted and people don't resonate with it they're reading it and going it's not that the material's not true or it's the person's message that how they show up isn't honest. And if you ask an editor, they'll say, yeah, I just need the, I need the author not to be good at writing. I need them to be true. And that's something that's difficult because a lot of authors will only share what their expertise is and they won't ever show any vulnerability. And that doesn't complete the loop. That doesn't make the full cycle. doesn't mean you have to air all your dirty laundry. We don't need to know all your stuff, but what part of you is not being vulnerable on the page? It, it, are you saying something because you want to look good, or are you saying what's true? And I think that's where that comes in. And when people are telling the truth, you know, when you read stuff, you're like, oh my gosh, that really resonates with me. It's because they're hitting a part of you that's all where it's also true. And that's that deep, deeper sort of space that they can enter into. Yeah, it's so true. Writing is difficult, being honest and like getting edited. And then when someone's breaking you down, going, no, what do you mean by that? What does that word mean to you? How does that mean that? And you're like, you look at the notes. I just finished the fourth edit of my book. By through, it's going through Random House. It, everything I wish I could argue and say the copywriting editor was wrong, but everything they said was right. right. They're like, you're right. I'm just, I'm just rambling here. You're right. Get to the point. So you have a great TED talk, which has um, nearly 3 million views. And it's uh, good. Te- what makes a good teacher great? So what does make a good teacher great? You know, what's ironic about that title? Um, when I was asked to do the TED talk, I didn't know what I would talk about, to be honest. Actually, that was a failed book proposal. I had put together a book proposal, tried to pitch it, and my editor said, this is actually crap. I don't think it's good at all, which was, you know, that's not what you want to hear when you're a writer. But the truth was, I was a, I was a bit complaining a bit about how, what's wrong with education. And that's that's not interesting. No one would argue that. You don't need to be an educator to know that. What, what, I, what I wanted to say was actually those – 
for 24 years, I asked the same question, which is to kids, what makes a good teacher great? And then I would uh, collect them. I collected 26,000 responses to that question over 24 years. But what I had discovered was that I was never really listening to kids. I, I, I heard them, but I wasn't listening. And that was my biggest fault. And uh, one of the things I discovered was kids won't speak in adult language. They won't tell you the way we would tell them. So if you're expecting them to say things the way you would say, you're already missing the point. And so you have to learn to listen differently. And listening might mean, if a for example, uh, there was a kid uh, that wrote, uh, and it happened several different different years, a great teacher eats apples. And I thought, well, that's a cliche and ridiculous. So I discarded it and didn't think much of that. Like, that seems silly. Um, but it came up again and again. I was like, why do they keep saying this? Like, I don't understand. And what, what I did is I decided, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not listening because they're telling me if I want to be great, eat apples. But I, I said, so I went to the store, I bought a bag of those apples uh, for, you know, like six bucks. And I began to eat them every morning and class at lunch. And kids would stop me in the hall that weren't even in my class going, you're eating an apple. I'm like, I am. It was a bizarre thing. And as I continued to do this, what I realized that I was missing was when they said great teachers eat apples is they see that we were willing to receive a gift from them. In this case, it was an apple and I was willing to eat it. I was willing to accept it and say, you have something to offer as much as valuable as I have something to offer you. And it was a metaphor, but they weren't telling me that because that's adult speak. So I learned a lot, but I, I hadn't learned it. I spent 24 years kind of collecting this, not knowing what I was doing, to be honest. And so they, they, they said incredible things. Another example of it was, you could say what makes a great good teacher great is, was so confusing is one kid said a great teacher sings. And I was like, well, I can't sing. So I guess I suck. I don't, I mean, this is not good. And so I just, again, I, it was from Danny. You know, everyone has a Danny in their class. It's a class clown makes anytime you can cut up. Maybe you were one of the, maybe you were Danny. I don't know. But like, I loved Danny, but <laughs> I could never seem to get through to Danny, except for if it was with humor. So I figured he's just being funny. But the other comments he had said were really thoughtful, like a great teacher, you know, respects your your space, a great teacher, you know, understands. And I was like, these are all thoughtful, but why this one? Is this his joke? Well, what I decided to do, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to second guess kids. That's what I've been doing for decades. I want to figure out what he means. So the next day I, I put the agenda on the board like a teacher would. And I decided I'm going to, in my best operatic voice i don't sing opera i don't even know what it sounds like i just sang the entire agenda from beginning and it's as honest as i thought i could you know i can't sing but i just i'm just gonna do the best i expected them to laugh i was playing into danny's joke is what i figured but what happened at the end of it is they all stood and some on their desk and cheered and clapped it was a standing ovation and i was like what just happened i thought this was a butt of a joke and at the end of class, they were all high-fiving me, shaking my hands, and Danny was the last one out. And he, he leaned into me and he said, I told you a great teacher sings. And he walked out the door. And I was blown away. And what I learned from that is he was saying that, but he's like, a great teacher is willing to be vulnerable in front of their yeah. students and take a risk. Yeah. We tell them to do it all the time, but yeah. teachers don't. Great teachers yeah. do, though. So that's the example. I, I mean, it's blown me away because it took me a long time to figure out what they were saying because I wasn't listening. And that's, that's the whole premise of the Ted talk. Yeah. Great teachers. Uh, absolutely. And great writers are not worried about people listening to them. They're most concerned about what people are listening for. And I think that's a great message and why so many millions of people are resonating 
with your videos and with your coaching or the best book coaches in the world, authors who lead, authors who lead.com. He also will allow you to try it out through the author power hour in a 14 day trial. Check out Azul. He has already proven his success, not for himself alone, but for many, many others. CEO and co-founder of Authors Who Lead. Thank you for joining me and Mikey D here on Office Hours. We'll have you back. Thank you so much. All right, you buddy. send me one of those shirts too. Great teachers wear giraffe shirts. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you criminal. Let's bring on the SS himself. <laughs> Every Jewish guy from New York has a friend named Scotty Shapiro. And this is, of course, another Scott Harris Shapiro, Scotty Shapiro. CEO of American Optical AOI, where this stuff's got- state of state optical company. Um, Scott, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, guys. I can't tell you how many people ask me every time I go to the grocery store. Do, uh, are, do you have a cousin who's a lawyer? Are you a doctor? <laughs> I get tired. I get tired of telling people. You know, I have an undergraduate degree. That's where it ends. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I got a good one. So everyone asks me, you know, oh, you know, either am I the wrestling guy, Dave Meltzer, or they'll say. Or are you related to Brad Meltzer, the author? And I was blessed to run into Brad Meltzer. And he said to me, oh, my God, I am so glad to meet you. I can't tell you how many people ask me if I'm related to you. And I was like, come on, man. You're like that's, the famous that's the greatest author. compliment. No, I'm serious. He goes, I, I'm a huge fan of wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. That's so the wrestling. It, anyway, you're, you're, you guys understand the stage theory uh, at AOIWare and State Optical. And the stage theory is it's not just uh, the functionality of the product. It's where it's worn and how it's seen, how it's captured, amplified, modified, and perpetuated. And if anyone knows the history of your company and the multi-million dollar brand that you built, it's not only the product itself, it's where it's been worn and uh, how it's been worn. Give us a little bit of a background on how that brand has evolved to the point where it is, you know, world renowned and known for style and prestige. Well, uh, first, let's start by that stage theory. I mean, is there a product that's more appropriate for that than sunglasses? Right. right. Yeah. You know, Ask I, James I, Dean and Elvis Presley, right? Th- that's right. So, <laughs> so, so, you know, um, I'm proud of our product. I think we produce a very, very high quality product. But to your point, there's so much more to it than that, right? It, it has to have a soul. It has to have a story to go along with it. And, you know, uh, we found in our sunglass company that today more than ever, consumers want to buy something that they can somehow connect to. Uh, that's why a charity component is so important. And that's why a history is so important. If they feel, if they buy something, and they feel that it's, it, it means something to them, then they're gonna talk about that and they're gonna love it and they're gonna buy it again and they're gonna wear it forever. So our product, American Optical Sunglasses, first of all, that product is made here in the United States. So that immediately to a lot of Americans means something and, it, and it's something that they gravitate towards and it's something they love to tell their friends and family about. Um, but the history of American Optical is, uh, is really, uh, so unique and, and we're very lucky as a company to sort of, we, we feel like we have fostered this hidden gem because American Optical is a company uh, that's been around since 1833. It's the oldest optical company in America. 
it is it has been the innovator for so many incredible American uh, inventions, fiber optics. Uh, it's been involved in uh, many uh, motion picture technologies. Um, uh, it was it was the first frame ever to hold a bifocal. And so we're talking about stuff that goes back, obviously, almost two centuries. Uh, it was also the first uh, the, the original pilot uh, sunglass was the first sunglass ever on the moon worn by uh, all the astronauts on that Apollo mission that uh, th that first went to the moon. It's been worn by John F. Kennedy many times, the Saratoga, that was his favorite pair of sunglasses. So, I mean, you can imagine, right? So we didn't start this brand, obviously, it started well before we were around, but when we had the opportunity to bring it into our family, um, and I, you know, I grew up in, in eyewear, my parents uh, started uh, their eyewear company uh, back in 1977. So this is my, my blood and my, and my life to be an eyewear and an optical. And when we had the opportunity to bring this into our portfolio, I mean, you, you can imagine how excited everyone in, on our team was to, to be a part of this, to, to, to work with these sort of roots, especially because it had been all but forgotten. So I talk about it being a hidden gem. Uh, this is in, in the mid 20th century, American Optical was the biggest optical company in the world. And when we uh, purchased the company uh, AO Eyewear, uh, just a few years ago, it had whittled down to almost nothing. And so what we found is, uh, while it's not the most popular sunglass brand in the world today, um, it is the type of brand that people who know about absolutely love because it's not the, it's not commonplace, right? It's like the true OG, the authentic original. And so uh, it's, it's just been a lot of uh, fun and, and it's been very exciting for, for our team to be a part of. How do, oh, that, that's such an incredible thing. So you take on something with such a deep history. And you, one thing that I love what you said is soul. So how do you take on something that's so deep like that and then continue the leg legacy like that and keep everyone involved? As you said, it went from here down and then you've got to kind of bring it up. How do you manage that? Because that's really difficult to do and keep that story resonating correctly. It is. You know, we feel like we've taken on a massive responsibility Right. Like we yeah. better do this right, because there's so much history that goes along with it. So many people over the course of the last almost 200 years who have you know, given their souls to this brand and this organization. And now it's up to us not to screw it up. Um, the, the first step we took to answer your question directly is we brought that manufacturing back to the United States. So as the uh, so American Optical was a brand that was always American. Uh, it was. Uh, headquartered in uh, Southbridge, Massachusetts. Um, but as it was sort of dwindling down uh, towards the end of the of the 20th century, they shipped their manufacturing out to China. And that was sort of like the last death nail in uh, in the brand and, and sort of its authenticity. So um, we already had manufacturing here in, in our uh, Chicago headquarters. And it's very rare, you, you probably know this, it's very, very rare for eyewear or anything, but especially eyewear to be made in the United States. Um, but we, we were already doing that. So it was logical for us to, to, to take this brand and then bring the manufacturing back to the United States. And when you do that, uh, when you manufacture your product with your own hands, essentially, right? With people in our headquarters, it totally changes uh, your relationship to that product. Um, all of a sudden, you see it being produced uh, firsthand. You know the people 
who put the blood, sweat, and tears into making that product. And they know, provided you train them properly and bring them into your story and make them understand what they're doing, they know that when somebody puts on a pair of American optical sunglasses, they're not just putting on a pair of sunglasses, they're putting on a made in America sunglass and they've never done that before. So when they when they pick that up, that made in America sunglass, they, they don't know what that means, right? Does, today, it's so rare. They know if it says made in, in, in France, it's probably very high quality. And if it's made in China, it's probably not. What does made in America mean? It's up to that craftsman in our factory to define what that means to that consumer. And so that person, as you can imagine, takes their, their job and their craft very, very seriously. And so when we talk about a product having a soul, it's that guy's soul, right? It is because it means so much to him. And, you know, we are very transparent and, and open about our manufacturing process. Um, so if uh, a consumer or certainly a retailer wants to come visit our factory, it's an open invitation. And we give tours probably about twice a week. And you can imagine how cool it is if you love this product to actually meet the, you know, the, 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 the small group of people who are crafting it for you. It just, it, it, you can't, you can't buy that sort of experience through any other uh, process. You know, the most remarkable thing I think that I'm most curious about is when we're talking about legacy brands of over a hundred years old, when, when you were looking at a successful company that has every advantage of human nature. You know, I study history to determine the human nature because it never changes. And so if we stay consistent in the production of something like the American eyewear, it should aggregate. It's, it's not like a technology, like a gas lamp that, hey, you know, you are gonna have a gas lamp company, no one's gonna complain. But sunglasses, especially ones based on emotional connection, human nature, what was it that caused the company, you know, I know late you told me they went to China, that's obvious, but they must not have been doing well to go ahead and outsource that manufacturing and lower the quality. What was it that they did to stop the consistent, persistent pursuit of that higher potential? Because they should be one of the biggest and best if they would have followed a correct course of action. You guys always saw the potential, but you must have also seen why and where they went wrong. Yeah, so um, uh, of course I wasn't around at that time, so I can't speak specifically for the mistakes that were made, but clearly there was a lot of mismanagement. And sometimes, uh, you know, there are, there, are, there are business solutions that aren't always best for the company and the brand. And what happened specifically with American Optical was uh, it was bought out, uh, bought from the family that, that, that founded it, uh, by some kind of, you know, this is back in, again, uh, the uh, mid to late 20th century. Um, and it was, uh, it was sold off in parts. So what happened was because the company was, you know, again, absolutely massive. So not only did they produce sunglasses, they produced eyeglasses, they produced lenses, cases, glass, I mean, uh, optometry equipment, everything you could possibly need that had anything to do with, uh, with, with eye care. Uh, they even made glass eyes. Um, so anything that you could possibly need. So when it was, when it was bought by frankly, you know, more financially minded people. And, and, you know, this is, this is a very common theme that we heard about in the seventies and eighties corporate raiders. They bought uh, a very big and, and profitable company and they sold it off in pieces. And when they sold it off in pieces, um, the only 
the only division that was left in Southbridge uh, by the time we came along was the eyewear and sunglass division. Everything else had been sold to other big players. 3M uh, at one time owned uh, the safety division. Um, uh, a company named Zeiss is uh, still uh, uh, owns the lens division. But what was left was that eyewear division. And and again, it had it had whittled down to to virtually nothing. They were only making two styles of sunglasses, and they had about seven people in a very small place at that time uh, uh, working on that product. Um, and so. Uh, so, so we, you know, obviously, again, we looked at that and we said, wow, this is, we can do so much with this, right? I mean, so it, it, it is really like finding a diamond in the rough. Yeah, I, yeah that's a great answer. And I think it's very uh, transparent of how a lot of people weren't around back then. And, you know, it's interesting, the different strategies that can render, you know, a diamond in the rough, because I think. Uh, from my experience as a marketer, like I would love to be involved in marketing this thing. This is built uh, for story and lessons, and it's such a high quality uh, product with a great history. Uh, I can't see any reason why it's not going to succeed. And I'm sure, luckily for you, you got a, a nice uh, bottom line price on it. Mike, you got time for another question? Yeah, I was going to say, where do you take it from here? Like, where where, where do you see the future going for you guys? Well, it, it's funny, you know, our company and my experience is primarily in optical, um, uh, which is which is a very different type of business than the sunglass business. So um, we have in our optical company, uh, we we sell primarily through optometry offices. That's how you traditionally sell eyeglasses. Um, so when we when we when we brought American on, as I said, it was it was it was only a sunglass company at that time. And it was exciting for us because sunglasses obviously are much sexier uh than eyeglass frames although the eyeglass frames are much sexier than they used to be um and we have some very nice eyeglass frames but like uh the the, the exciting thing about having a sunglass brand is that you can sell it through any channel possible so it was for us now all of a sudden we have a, a potential direct to consumer business we can sell to retailers that we never sold to before that don't sell optical frames we can sell on our website we can sell on amazon so uh, so the, the benefit there was obvious, but also another huge opportunity for us is to translate that brand back to where it truly belongs, American Optical, into an optical brand as well. So uh, just next year, we are going to uh, uh, be releasing uh, an optical collection for ophthalmic eyewear, and that'll be available through optometry offices all over the country uh, in 2023. Awesome. Another Scotty Shapiro in my life, just kicking butt in another David Meltzer one hurt either. CEO of American Optical. What a great history and what a great future. AOIwear.com and stateopticalco.com. Check them out. I'm, they're in the Smithsonian, so they're not hard to find. Be part of the heritage and the history. Let's bring this stuff back and build this company where it should be. It's American made and it is an icon of america you can't get any bigger than jfk so scotty i'm putting the ball in your court make it happen we'll have you on more of our shows thank you so much for joining us i, I can't tell you thank you enough for the time thank you very much have a great day great job thank you Thanks, all right our awesome. cleanup hitter he's uh dealing in a very popular space today ravi's in the house ravi swaminathan he is the ceo and co-founder of task human and uh, just to warn you, Robbie, Mike is a hybrid, so he's half human, half alien. 
but you'll <laughs> probably be able to uh, reconcile what we're trying to talk about in the shift uh, today, the shift of how we can have the mindset, the heart set, and the handset to be successful as we move from the great resignation to the great rehiring, as economic downturn has started, and I don't even think it's looming, but it's definitely started already, and uh, would love to hear how we reconcile the mindset, the heart set, and the handset with the future of our uh, accelerated changing economy and exactly how TaskHuman is helping uh, with this coaching platform, this helping to align us uh, with the future to be the most profitable, passionate, and purposeful that we can be. Oh, that's probably the best intro I've ever heard. And, and Mike, I'm honored to, uh, to join a co-alien, you know, <laughs> finally, you finally solved you. The, you know, what happened in Area 51 to you, you know. There you go. Say him, he, him and Alien Musk with that huge tan of his. I've never seen a whiter human being in my life. Uh, so Mikey and, and the Alien Musk, those guys can hang out together. But go ahead. Good to have you, Robbie. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. Awesome. So how exactly is the Task Human digital coaching platform uh, being utilized for the mindset, heart set, and handset that's needed for the future? Yeah, you know, we, we always thought, uh, and I think all of us can relate to this, you know, we've all gone to Google and typed in whatever we wanted, right? And, and Google's response is to give you any article and video that is relevant to that, right? That topic. So you could type in and say, hey, I'm stressed out or I'm bummed knee. Uh, what do I do? And um, and we love that, right? Tons of stuff at your fingertips. But there are moments in your life where you sit there and go, eh, I just want to talk to a live human being. I don't think I want to read more articles. I don't want to watch more videos. Like, I wish I could just do something with a real live human expert in that area. And uh, and so Task Human was built to solve that particular problem and experience. So when you want uh, to do a yoga session one-on-one, uh, when you want, you know, you feel like you're stressed out and you want to talk to somebody, um, you want to, you have a pet that's running around eating your pillow and it's driving you nuts. Instead of reading articles and videos about what to do, you could talk to a pet coach live, uh, leadership coaching, sales coaching, right? There's just so many moments in your life where you're like, ah, articles and videos, that's not what I need. I need a human being. Task Human provides a live experience. So you go into the app, you just like, just like Google, type in the same exact phrase, and instantly you can see who around the world in our curated network is available right then. So you can just two seconds, you could be boom live with a yoga teacher or a career coach or a leadership coach or pick a, any of the thousand different professions that we have and uh, instantly video call them. You just put the phone or tablet down where they can see you and boom, you're live. So that's, that's what we wanted to bring as a product and an experience to the consumer in this internet age. And you would think somebody would have done it, but uh, turns out it uh, hadn't done it, and we just went off and did it. And we think that in this brave new world, that's the digital connection that's missing, right? You know, you have live experiences of all sorts, right? Airbnb live experiences. You want to, you know, watch a cooking class live show in Italy. You can join that. You know, there's lots of group Zoom sessions that you can join. Facebook live, YouTube live, Clubhouse, right? These are all products that exist that gets you lots of human beings in the same room with you. But what about that one-on-one, -on -one, right? That's the format that we felt was neglected. And, uh, and we think that in this increasingly digital world, that human connection one-on-one -on -one is a missing link that is super important. I mean, it's massive for people's mental health when you talk about that, because without that, people are really 
struggling alone. So how long, because people are what, probably going to watch this and wonder how you came up with this, the process from the initial idea to putting it together, how long did it take you? Because it's just so complex what you've done and you're bringing so much value to people. Well, complexity plus also, I would say, just uh, laziness. <laughs> I actually wrote the business plan down, you know, 10 years ago uh, before it was started in, in ink and paper, you know, and I had some time. And, uh, and then, you know, and then just over time, kind of just had different jobs, other things that I was happy doing. And then, um, you know, when I figured it was time for me to transition from, you know, I was a VP and GM at SanDisk running a business unit and so on. When it was time to like, just go do something more um, impactful after the, the team got acquired, um, this was it. I mean, I'd kind of dusted off the books and I was like, hey, this idea actually makes sense now. It had so many holes back then. But, you know, it kind of makes sense because video calling had become a thing because, uh, you know, 10 years ago, you would have to explain what video calling actually is, right? Not a lot of people were doing it. There wasn't a lot of people using, well, I don't think there was even FaceTime or any of that equivalent stuff. Maybe Skype had just launched, right? So this notion of video calling somebody wasn't really a thing. But then fast forward to when we started, it was definitely a thing because it was already there in telemedicine. And then I think the, the fact that, you know, with COVID and remote work, people just got infinitely more comfortable with video calls and, uh, and were able to bring unique experiences over video. And how does one-on-one -on -one personal experience help with the retention of the employee and the employee morale? Uh, and you would think, you know, we are zoomed out or that people have enough one-on-one -on -one digital attention, but you, you know, have been able to prove through your company task human that it actually builds employee morale and retains your top talent yeah i was actually on a, a zoom town hall in one of their events with their uh, chro at that time uh, lynn oldham and zoom's actually one of our customers and, and investors as well uh, we've probably talked about that uh, so when we launch it to employees one of the things that we found this is true universally across the board people think of this term called zoom fatigue right Unfortunately, it had the word Zoom, but it's, it was really meant to be a proxy for video call fatigue, right? And what we found, um, and I've talked extensively about this, uh, you know, to all of our customers, and I'm, I can definitely say this with authority, having heard from a ton of people around the world now about this, is it's not the video technology that causes the fatigue. It's what you're doing with it, right? If you're listening to a lecture for 10 hours, it's going to affect you. But you can use the video call technology at the end of that to call your mom who you haven't talked to, you know, let's say in you know two weeks and you're eagerly anticipating that call, it's gonna give you back the energy, right? Um, and so, so it's not the technology that causes the fatigue. There is no such thing as Zoom fatigue. It's really what you do with it. If you're working intensely over a video call, just like, you know, a physical day of work life, you know, somewhere else would put you to fatigue. This is going to do the same to you, right? And so it's the activity and not the uh, medium. And so following that, you know, line of thinking, when you do a yoga session at the end of the day, when you do a meditation session on task human at the end of the day, uh, when you're focusing on the things that truly matter to you, whether it's leadership, you know, maybe you never had time to call your life coach and suddenly you're doing that now at the end of the day because... It's so much more convenient to do that on your drive back from work or if that's that's your thing, right? It's it's what you do 
And the things that you do on Task Human are self-care, right? When you when the focus is back on you and you're doing something nice for yourself, that gives you back the energy, regardless of the same medium when you used to do the work of long, hard day, 10 hours of continuous meetings, is gonna fatigue you. It's like watching the all-star game versus watching the home run derby. I get it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, you said it. Good me. point. Good point. <laughs> Good yeah. Well, we certainly uh, can see the value. And I think the distinctions that you made in the space are extremely important as we're moving into even faster uh, and exponential differences in our workforce, in the technologies and understanding how to utilize it with the right content at the right time to help with the emotional well-being, mental, physical uh, well-being, and even our personal health and professional growth. There's so many aspects uh, that you can utilize and there's no wonder why you brought in the investments from the biggest companies in the space who know and understand this much better than uh, the average user. I appreciate you taking the time to educate us. Please come back as well. This has been quite a lineup today. You can check out TaskHuman at TaskHuman.com. Find an expert, enjoy yourself, find the best content to stimulate uh, you and to create a true, healthy, happy, passionate, purposeful, and even profitable platform that allows you to expand, grow, and accelerate uh, to give you the better future. Thanks so much, Robbie, for helping us. We'll have you back. Yeah, thank you so much, David. Mike, cheers. Cheers. Bye, thank you. I'm gonna go use that. I got a few things I gotta learn. So, uh, not going to help. I, I got a few questions I need answered. And I don't want to watch videos of it. I want to ask a human being that's an expert. All right, Mike, speaking of which, what's your uh, takeaway of the day? It's a lot we handled. It was, it was a really interesting show, but you know what? It was really, I liked. Um, I think like there was something that resonated with me and I think you do it really well and a lot of people don't, is we all have a unique message to tell. And I think people should be authentic about that message and be really clear on their future and then one thing that we always like talk about and people don't do it is learn to listen and read between the lines and listen to not just the words, but go deeper below the surface and take the time to really authentically listen to someone. And if you do that, you can really help people and it's really powerful. Yeah, no doubt. And mine falls within the precept of leadership. Um, and the idea of being an intelligent follower. And all four of our guests uh, are and inspire people to be intelligent followers, to understand what people are listening for and provide and be able to articulate the quantitative value of what people are listening for to exceed what you're charging them. This is the mathematical equation of business and leadership, not leadership. So that's my takeaway for the day. Thank you, my fellow criminal, as our friend us, <laughs> Mr. Adrian. Yo, Adrian, we're both criminals. Take us to a new ground. Uh, Mikey oh Diamond here. Diamond Life Fuel is changing my life, and it can change yours. Reach out to Get Mikey. you jacked up. Get it's, you jacked it's, up. It's dude, you wouldn't believe. I, I, the one thing I miss waking up this morning at 3 a.m., by the way, was I, it's been the longest time since I got my di digital diamond Data. Oh, you know what? I, I've got to start doing it. it. It got so crazy. You know what it was? I'm getting these crazy people text me in the morning 
that are like clients and then I forget and I put the phone down and I like to do that first. So I'll start doing it again, but I'll send out the I'm, love again. I haven't been doing it. I, that's the truth. I, 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 I missed the clock. Let's just say it that way. I'll this is David back. Meltzer with the incredible Mike Diamond. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. We'll catch you tomorrow. This show may be the best on earth. Uh, I love it. We bring in, it's completely organic and authentic and at the essence of Mikey D and David M, the opposite initials, as you can see, we are having a great time. Go ahead, fuel up. Be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Take care.